0: Well, welcome back to our study of uh, of the uh, New Testament ecclesiology, and this morning I'd like to look at the Church of Sardis, and uh, sort of an amazing passage of Scripture. And as we think of the, as we think of these churches, and and the thing that I guess just keeps impacting me as I study these churches, is I really. God put this in scripture to give us a picture of where different perhaps modern-day churches are at and uh, so the question I keep asking myself God where do we fit in these churches Sardis all but rigor mortis is how I've entitled it a bit further or further into the message like to read the passage of Scripture, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church of Sardis, write these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will know that. You will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes, shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has ears to hear, let him, sorry, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Of the five churches that we've studied or including the one today, in Revelation, there is something distinctly different about God's evaluation of this church from the other four compared to the other four that we've already studied. And I think it's noteworthy to mention the difference. Notice how God directed his judgment toward the church of Sardis. He says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. That's it. There was no more of a direct way that he could present something than what he did with the church of Sardis. I know that you, are, you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. Period. End of evaluation. No compliments. Nothing good that they did. That was it. Now notice just as a refresher how that compares to the previous four churches that we already studied. Ephesus, God said about them, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. You have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. They had quite a few things that God was commending them about. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. A little bit different from the way he did with Sardis. Smyrna, I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they're rich and are Jews and are not, but are uh, uh, a synagogue of Satan. And, and And he really does not condemn them with anything, but he insinuates that they may have been living in fear Do not fear any of these things. Pergamos, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, that you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. But I do have a few things against you because you you have those who hold to the doctrine of, of Balaam. And you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And we talked about that. So they had a couple things that he was commending them about, but they also had some things that they really needed to change in their, in their congregation. Thyatira, I know your works, love, service, faith, your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. They had a lot of good things going for them, if you remember what we talked about, that, that congregation. But there are some things I've ha- that I have against you. You've allowed that woman, Jezebel, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to uh, eat things that are sacrificed to idols. All the other churches, he gave them a compliment of some kind. With the church of Sardis, he didn't. There's no uh, uh, commendation that uh, that went their way. I know your works, that you are alive, but that you are dead. Now, his assessment really caught my attention. Think of just think about what he just said about that congregation. They have a name that they are alive, but they're really dead. And I have a question, and the question is, how can something dead have a name that it is alive? Think about that. I read a news blip recently, some time ago, about a person who was pronounced dead. In fact, he was pronounced be- dead by the, the, by the medical team and the coroner. Both announced him dead. And they had already put this person in the morgue when they discovered that, in fact, he was alive. Uh, I don't know if the medical team just missed something, which is a scary thought or if God actually brought life back to the person. I don't know. We don't know. However, that would be the case just opposite from the church at Sardis. There was a person that was dead who was actually alive. Now, numerous times in scriptures, we have examples of persons or people being raised back to life. Uh, Even though it would be an extraordinary event if we were to witness something like that, it does really make a bit more sense when what had once had life then died would be brought back to life again. Because God is the source of life. We would agree with that. That God is the source of life. God is life. Amen. So it was his breath, that first brought life to man. And it is his breath that continues to give life to man. So for him to bring back life to one who has died is certainly not impossible because he is the source of life. However, how can something dead have a reputation to have life? Now, visualize with me a coffin up front here and a person lying inside. And I want to hear from you just some of the things, what would you see in that person lying in the coffin? What are some of the things you would see or what, what are some of the characteristics of a person inside a coffin? Cold, still, there's white, there's no flicker of an eyelid, there's no chest that's going up and down with the breath, There is no sign of life. Is there? Stiff? Rigid? How can it then be said of that person, or how could could somebody then think that that person is alive? It raises an interesting question because it was the very thing that they said about the church at Sardis. They have a name that they are alive, but they were dead. How can someone have a name that they're alive when they're dead? Now, before we go into that, we're going we're to address that. But before we go into that, I also want to talk just a little bit about the reflection or the power of a name and what is associated with a name. A name carries both reputation and character. A name is what other people commonly think about you Or about, in this case, a church. There are certain potential stigmas attached to the character of a person or to a name because of the character of a person. Um, when uh, When it comes to certain individuals and you hear that name, there's an association. And for instance, and you respond back to me, when I mention some of these names, what are some characteristics that come to your mind immediately? Adolf Hitler, tyrant. Tyrant. tyrant, ruthless, confused, uh, Nero, ungodly. ungodly, I would have associated ruthless, I mean, just unbelievable, just almost inhuman, Cain, first murderer, right, Jezebel, Right. I mean, there's just, there's names, when we mention them, there's certain characteristics that come to your mind right away. But the opposite is also true. There's also honor associated to names. There are characteristics of individuals that when I say the name, and I will say some names, what comes to your mind? When I say Abraham Lincoln, honest Honest Abe, absolutely, honest Abe. Uh, What about uh, Apostle Paul? Bold, an encourager, right? Exhorter, yeah. Uh, Daniel, what do you think of? Faithful, integrity, right? Queen Esther, humble, right? I mean, just laying down her life for her people. Ronald Reagan, just a person of wit and and knowledge and just very, I, I remember Dad saying, when he was in office, and dad would get regularly get US News and World Report. And I remember him saying over and over, This man has a lot of wit. He just says the right thing at the right time. Now, years later, he, people will reflect back to him. And, and I don't know if it's to the same degree that we look at, at Abraham Lincoln or not, but he was a very, very good president in many ways. Well, there's little wonder why the, the Scripture says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Now, I want to talk to you young men uh, in particular. Because according to Scripture and according to the principles of Scripture, if God leads you into marriage someday, it will be your primary responsibility to care for your families and to provide for your families. You are the, according to how God, back in the garden, or when when Adam and Eve first died, and and he was pronouncing judgment upon man. And and it was not a curse necessarily to, to the man, but he said that you will from this day forth, by the sweat of your brow, you will provide for your family. So this is your responsibility. But more important then making riches and providing wealth for your family, make it your goal to carry a good name. I know, and, and should God bless you with riches in an honest way, that's one thing. But I also know a lot of people that have started out in life with the goal to make a lot of money and they have tarnished their name because of it. So, And that doesn't just apply to young men, it's for everybody. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. A good name is better than precious ointment, Ecclesiastes says. So the question bears asking, that I ask myself, is so when people think of Berea, what do they think about? Now this is not a question as in in the sense of the fear of man, oh, what do people think about us? but it's an honest evaluation of ourselves. Who are we, and and how do we present ourselves? What is our character to those around us? I think it's a good, good question to ask. I certainly have asked that myself many times as I've gone through, like I said, through this series of messages. Well, I think that coming back to Sardis then, I think another question that we definitely must ask ourselves about the congregation of Sardis is, what gained them this reputation? What gained them the reputation that they were a church that was alive, but they were actually dead? In my studies, I I, I found several things that I think are noteworthy of this city that I believe uh, is worth our time to, to look at. At the time of this writing, Sardis had already seen its best days as a city. The time that this passage was written in in revelation it had already seen its best days and it was sort of on the decline already but that was not always the case with sardis uh, many years earlier it had been the it had been the capital of the old kingdom lydia and uh, and and if you know your history uh, king Caresus, does that name ring a bell king Caresus. Uh, had reigned, and he was also known as King Midas. But again, if you're familiar with with history, and I remember hearing this term, I never put the association together, but uh, he was a very, very wealthy man. King Croesus was a very wealthy man. In fact, even today, there's still the, the phrase, rich as Croesus. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that already. I just never put the association together. Uh, he was the Bill Gates of his day, probably the wealthiest man in the w- in the then known world. He was a very, very wealthy man, and uh, in fact, due to his his extreme uh, wealth, um, his influence had so impacted the the Grecian and the Persian culture that that his name actually became synonymous to a, to a wealthy person. And, of course, then today we still hear the term sometimes, maybe not as much, but the term riches Croesus Today probably something that's a little bit more associated to a wealthy person is keeping up with the Joneses. That would be more Western uh, term. But on a, on, so, so there was King Croesus that lived in Sardis. He reigned that area. On a timeline then, let's just think of a little bit of a timeline then, and I just, I just did from Moses to Christ, uh, 1500. Uh, 100 years before Christ was Moses. Uh, 500 years later was David. Ezra came 500 years later, and then, of course, there's Christ. At the time of this writing, Sardis was possibly written somewhere 70 to 95 AD, somewhere in that time. But the time of Croesus was back here, even before Ezra. And so it sort of helps us put together a timeline then. When the city of Sardis was really prosperous and doing well, um, Croesus, it is said that has was also the one that funded the building of the of the uh, temple to Artemis. Remember when we studied back in Ephesians, we ta- we talked about the temple at, of Artemis, which became one of the seven wonders of the world, and and it is said that on one of these pillars one of the columns here in the front uh, there's actually a signature of King Croesus at the base of this column and they have that base of that column in a museum in 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 Britain somewhere just for a side note there so Croesus was a very wealthy man now the third thing that we find is that the, the way that he accumulated his wealth, or at least one of the ways that he accumulated his, his wealth, was that there was a gold-rich river running through the center of town. The, the Pactolus River uh, came through the, t- the center of town, and, and it produced so much gold. That legend has it that the people of the residents of, of, of Sardis would pan for gold on their way to the market so that they'd have uh, something to buy their buy their f- their food. So uh, we need to come up with something like that somewhere uh, between here and Martins. Why we need to find a river that that flows with gold. It was also this city that uh, where the where coins were first minted, and uh, that's really where where the concept of money uh, started coming. And, and, and it, was the, it was out of Sardis that this, was, uh, that, that this started. And so this was the pinnacle. Th- this was Sardis in its glory. Many years later, of course, than when this passage was written, like I said, that was just sort of a distant past. They were definitely on the decline at that point. There's one more interesting item that I think is very noteworthy and that is the geographical location of this city. It was perched up on top of a, of, a, of a mountain about 1,500 feet above the valley floor. And surrounding three sides of this city was, uh, was the top of a high sheer cliff, uh, a rock cliff, and it made it almost impregnable against any military attack many armies tried made attempts to conquer this city because of the wealth that was associated with the city but none of them were able to do it and so it was very it was situated very well very well <coughs> well along about 547 BC just at the end of king croesus's reign uh, cyrus the king of persia cyrus the great king of persia persia was just coming into power in that area if you recall in history there was four great world powers persia medes and persians were one of them and that was the time that the persians were just starting to sweep the country cyrus was getting one city after another and in Western, what is today Western Asia and, and Turkey and those areas, he had pretty well conquered that whole area. And uh, nothing seemed to be stopping him, a little bit like Hitler did in Europe, and just going from one country to the next and just sweeping it by force and uh, just seemed like nobody was able to withstand him. And that was wh- what was happening with Cyrus. When he came to Sardis... And he saw the impossibility of scaling those cliffs to get up to that city. He gathered his troops together. And he, he told them, he said, and, and, he, and he put a challenge out in front of them. He said, I will give, I will give a, uh, a special reward to the man who figures out a way to conquer this city. Well, there was, a, there was a soldier in his army that made it his point. He was determined that he was going to get that reward. And so he went out and he started studying the walls and the cliffs of this city. And it says that for 14 days he stayed out there day and night trying to figure out how to scale the walls of this city or the, the cliffs of this city. And one day as he was watching obscured from anybody up on the city. He saw a, a soldier way up at the top of the of the of the hill. And at that point they actually had a wall even built around their city on top of the hill yet. And at the top of the wall there was a soldier that happened to drop his helmet over the edge of the cliff. And the soldier came down off of his um Off his stand and and came down the outside of the wall, and and he picked his way down the side of a cliff to retrieve his helmet. Once he retrieved the helmet, he went back up the same way and he scaled the wall and went back to his his duty. Well, the soldier, the Syrian soldier, uh, or the Persian soldier, uh, marked that path very carefully in his mind all the way down, and then all the way back up. And in his mind, he marked that path. And that night, he went and he handpicked a group of the best soldiers to go up there with him. And he followed that same path up the side of that cliff. And he got to the top of the mountain and to the top of the walls. And to their amazement, They were utterly astonished. There was not one soldier on guard on top of that wall. And they they went over the top of the wall into the city while the people were sleeping. They had no idea that the enemy had invaded. And they went and opened the doors, the gates to the city, and the rest is history. Now, 550-some years later, As God surveyed the strength and the sustainability of the Sardis church, what he noted of that church had some very similar characteristics to what the former state of its home city had been. While the congregation slept, the enemy scaled the walls and they had no clue that they had been invaded. It had slipped into a state of nominal Christianity. And they were busily comfortable in their complacency. And what they really needed was a wake-up call. And that's exactly what God said about this church. He said, be watchful and strengthen the things which remains. That word watchful has the idea to keep awake. That is watch, be vigilant. If there would be a message that I would want to leave and challenge you fathers here today, again, and you've heard us say it before, and we'll say it again. A challenge to myself. For your own families, be watchful, be vigilant. Do not let the enemy invade your space or your territory. And there's many ways it can happen. Many ways it can happen. Be vigilant. Stand guard. Don't fall asleep at your watch. Evidently, many of the members of this congregation had apparently belonged to Christ by name, but not in heart. George Eldon Ladd said this of Sardis. He said, Sardis is a picture of nominal Christianity, outwardly prosperous, busy with externals of religion, Religious activities, but devoid of spiritual life and power. They had a reputation of being alive when in reality they really were dead. It was a church filled with hypocrisy. About five years ago, John Regeer, and, and many of you will recognize that name, who is uh, who has... Uh, been very influential in in, uh, supporting the Grace Haven ministry and and, uh, actually sort of a a umbrella of of John's ministry in Colorado, began to to counsel more and more people from a Mennonite background. And John himself comes from Kansas, and his background is Mennonite as well. But he said the more that he began counseling these people, he said there is... He said there, there, he used to have four main root sins that he would really hone in on. But he said he added a fifth as he began to deal with more and more Mennonite people, and that is the sin of hypocrisy. And I, I, I just say that to say that, uh, to, to, to mention that. I think we can, I think it's so easy for us. We, we, we do put an emphasis, and I think rightly so. We do put an emphasis, emphasis on the external. And, and we don't only want people to speak religion, we want to them to live Christianity. And so there is, there is an emphasis to, to make your walk line up with your talk. I think it's scriptural. But with that then, and one of the things that I've that I've that I've mentioned about Christian families, Christian families, is maybe where we are very weak in is transitioning our helping our children experience their lost estate. We, we have some very high values. Rightly so. We should be teaching our children these high values. Honesty and, and um, um, kind and, and just all the good characteristics that are associated with God. We should be teaching. But what can tend to happen is that, that children just sort of slip into the kingdom. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? They they really haven't been wicked. And we don't want them to be. I don't think it needs to be that children experience the depths of, 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 of sin. At the same time, I think it takes a vigilant parent to help them understand their lost estate without Christ. And so now we put on the form. And yet there's really not a deep, deep, deep connection with the Father. And and it's a perfect setup for hypocrisy. Paul said it this way. it's, It's like having a form of godliness, but denying the power. And I wonder if that's where this church at Sardis found themselves. It's the very same thing that the congregation today has fallen prey to the enemy fall asleep with their busy activities, but really have no clue that a lot of their actions reek of death. Well, I think it begs us to ask the inevitable question, how can we tell if a church is dying or has died spiritually? The question reminds me of... of, uh, of what I once read about Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president. <coughs> Calvin was uh, <coughs> was an extremely quiet individual. And um, he was a man of, of few words. <coughs> he was very reserved, and he rarely answered, they say, with with more than two or three uh, words. And eventually it gained him the reputation of, of uh, silent Cal, and uh, so uh, the, the public had seen him as, as sort of a stiff and uh, an emotionless kind of a person. In fact, um, uh, someone made the observation that it looked like he was weaned on a dill pickle. And uh, so the story has it that Dorothy Parker, a columnist at the New Yorker, uh, was once invited to a, uh, to a dinner uh, with President Coolidge, and um, and, as she, and she happened to sit right next to him. And uh, during dinner, she leaned over to him and said, uh, Mr. Coolidge, I've made a bet against the fellow who said it was impossible to get more than two words out of you. And he thought a bit, and he leaned over to her and said, You lose. Well, in 19... 93, or thir- 33, 1933, January 5th, 1933, the, area, the radio airwaves crack, uh, crackled with the news of Coolidge's death uh, from a heart attack. And uh, the, uh, the same person, Dorothy Parker, uh, was in her office at the New Yorker at the time, and a colleague came by and flung open the door and, and, and said to her, Dottie, did you hear? Coolidge is dead. And... Uh, and she thought a bit and she said, How could they tell? <laughs> it might take a while to soak in. <laughs> so, how can we tell if a church is dying spiritually? It's a bit easier to determine death or life in the physical state, but quite a bit more difficult to determine in the spiritual state. And here's the reason. Churches, as you know, are made up of individuals. And churches die when individual members cease to grow spiritually. Personal spiritual growth is a result of a choice. Individuals cannot be forced to follow Jesus or to deepen their walk with God. We can preach, we can teach, we can encourage, we can exhort, but it still comes down to the individual choice of a person. When enough of the members have fallen asleep in their walk with God, then so does the church. I'd like to leave you with a couple practical ways that maybe fleshes out when a church has slipped into a state of death. The first one that I think about is when religion supersedes relationship. The practice of religion can look very much like the real thing and still have no faith at all. Religion is a little bit like, someone says, like getting the flu shot. You get enough of the dead virus to keep keep us from getting the live one or the real thing the hardest group of people to reach for Christ is the religious person because they have inoculated themselves with enough of the right activities to think that they have the real faith when in essence they only have a form of the real thing. Jesus said to the church of Sardis, I know your works. Now obviously there was movement, There was activity, there was deeds that they were doing of some sort. And from a distance, they may have looked like the real deal. But obviously, their actions were built on what Paul calls wood, hay, and stubble. It did not stand the test of fire. It's the kind of activities that will be judged by the judgment of fire. It will not stand. I would also kindly make this observation that quite possibly it takes a spiritually dead person to think that someone is alive when they are actually dead. Is that too pointed? There was a broad assumption that this church was alive. However, the spirit of life will soon detect when there is no life. When somebody truly has the spirit of life within them, they can soon detect when there is no life. Death cannot be fooled for long by a person who is alive spiritually. So evidently, those who thought the congregation was alive may also have been dead. When religion supersedes relationship, now, whenever there's relationship, there will always be activity. There will also, there will, I mean, James, the book of James, that's full of, he said, James argues, he says, okay, I understand that grace, that, that faith comes by grace, but listen, show me your faith uh, with, with uh, I will show you my faith by my works. I, I can't get the first part of that. Um, And so so there will always be activity with a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Since the activities of the righteous person, or the religious person, I should say, since the activities of the religious person and the true person of faith are so similar, it is sometimes difficult to judge between the two. However, the spirit, I think, that radiates from both individuals cannot be fooled, neither can the fruit. The church who is alive will have activities, but they will be activities that will bear fruit. Perhaps the church that looks so appealing down the street because of all their programs and all their activities for every age and group of people may not be as spiritually alive as what it appears, initially at least. Maybe there's a lot of things going on, but are the the activities, is the action born of self or is it born of God? And I think that's the difference between a church who is dying or has died or one who is truly alive. From the outside, you may not be able to tell the difference right away. But as individuals who have the spirit of life within them, you will soon detect the real source of life or death. The second way, the second symptom that I have, and there's I'm sure there's many others, I just, I just picked out two, and because it relates to, I think, the Church of Sardis. But the second one is when there is an absence of struggle. Now, this may sound sound odd at first, but I want to help you think through this logic. I think too often in our Western world, we have been given a gospel that says, come to Jesus and he will take care of all your problems. Just put your trust in Jesus and he'll take care of the rest. Well, there's some truth to that. (laughs) it's like Ray Comfort says he's talking to somebody about that and he says I tried that I became a Christian and I faced nothing but trials and struggle the truth according to scripture is that churches and individuals grows, grow best when they are tried as by fire according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Struggle helps stimulate growth because it forces us to make a choice at the time of temptation. Am I going to trust in God and hang on to my faith or am I going to turn my back against him? It's how we grow in Christ is through struggle. And yet, and I shared just a little bit in the Sunday school. Uh, You know, I hear people saying, I'm just not sure that I can trust God. You have the problem. It's not God. If you can't trust God, (laughs) in all his faithfulness to many generations in the past, then you have the problem, not God. Unlike the other four churches that we studied so far, Sardis does not list any troubles. Did you notice that? Um, there were no Orthodox Jews opposing, uh, opposing uh, Paul, like they like it happened in Ephesus. There were no Nicolaitans, or those who followed the the uh, the heresy of Balaam. There was no prophetess called Jezebel, who was leading the church astray. There was no threat of compulsory Caesar worship, like it was at Pergamum. There were no trade guilds putting pressure on the Christian community like they had at Thyatira. It doesn't list any troubles that they had. Sardis was seemingly trouble-free. And could it be that is one of the reasons that the the reason that they were trouble-free is because they really didn't have an impact of being salt and light in their world. They have been like many churches today, who want to present a non-offensive Christianity. Whenever we take this soft approach to the gospel, we become little threat to the devil or his advocates. Those who are truly walking with Christ will offend the world. We... I don't think we need to be brash about it. I, don't, I think there's some ways that we can present the gospel with that in a non-judgmental way, but we should never apologize. Never, never apologize. A truly vital church will always be under attack. The right kind of struggle is actually a sign of life. Jesus gave the warning in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. If you don't have or encounter problems, and I'm not talking about your your, your socks mismatching in your drawer. That's not the kind of troubles I'm talking about. I'm talking about the the hard stuff. When you're faced with death, maybe a terminal illness, when when you're faced with a layoff and job and, 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 and your savings is running out, And and you're you're tempted to fear and fret and worry and doubt. Or am I going to run to Jesus and say, God, I don't know what all you're trying to do with me, but I just prostrate myself before you, and I know you want to do a good work in my life. That's the kind of struggle I'm talking about. The stuff that changes the character of a person. If you don't encounter problems, check your spiritual pulse because it could show that you're more spiritually dead than alive. Now, I used, in conclusion, I just want to say that I used the, the title that I did, All But Rigor Mortis, because there is a short period of time after a person has died that the body is still flexible and warm, and can be moved. And it could appear like there's life. But that, that period is very, very short. Soon, the body will begin to stiffen, and the muscles will begin to stiffen, and it cannot be moved easily again. The same, I think, is true of a church body. There may be some activities that may appear like there's life and good things happening, And the real deal is going on for a short period of time. But if the spirit of life has actually left and been snuffed out, then it will only be a matter of time before these activities will sustain themselves. May that never be said of Berea. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your kindness your goodness your love your mercy to us thank you for the truths that you've taught us in your word as it relates to the church of sardis and how we relate it to our lives personally and as a as a body of believers lord may we not inoculate ourselves may we not get enough of religious activities to think that we're doing right when in essence we're very, very disconnected from the Father, the source of life. Oh God, I pray that every individual here this morning, from young to old, would have a living, vibrant relationship, uh, at least young as far as age of accountability, where where, where there would be a living, vibrant relationship with the Father. And where there's a true source of life energizing the individual. And for those who have maybe slipped in a state of mediocrity, Lord, that you would, that you would quicken that, that spirit and that you would bring, continue to bring life and wholeness and godliness, righteousness in that individual's lives. Lord, if, if there's someone here this morning that has never encountered your life, oh God, that today would be the day that they would make that choice for you. Guide and direct us. We give you thanks. In your name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Laverne, I'm going to let you close.